IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Brought to you by Brilliance Audio. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 22 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, so this is the first episode that we're producing in partnership with io9 and Brilliance Audio. Uh, and we'd really like to thank Anna Lee Newitz of io9 and John Grace of Brilliance Audio for supporting the show and uh, allowing us to, to keep doing this. Since we're new here at io9, I thought we should introduce ourselves. So I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of several anthologies such as Wastelands and The Living Dead. I'm also the editor of the online science fiction magazine Lightspeed, which is at lightspeedmagazine.com. And my most recent books are The Living Dead 2, which just came out, and The Way of the Wizard, which comes out in November. And I'm David Barkertley. I'm the author of a few dozen short stories that have appeared in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy, Weird Tales, Lightspeed, and Intergalactic Medicine Show, and in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction, Fantasy the Best of the Year, and The Dragon Done It. And my two newest stories appear in John's anthologies The Living Dead 2 and The Way of the Wizard. If you're just joining us uh, here at Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, we just want to let you know that we produced 21 episodes earlier this year for Tor.com, and those are all still online. You can go to Tor.com and click on Podcasts and check all of those out. We've interviewed lots of different interesting people, Paolo Bacigalupi, Holly Black, Naomi Novik, Sherry Priest, Jonathan Colton, and we talked about Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and zombies and real-life war robots and all sorts of fun stuff like that. Uh, and on the show today, we'll be interviewing George R.R. R. Martin and talking about his work. And I know a lot of people are probably just tuning into this because they want to hear the George R.R. R. Martin interview. And we have a bunch of listeners uh, already who I know have been waiting to listen to this interview for a long time. So uh, we're going to get right to that. This is uh, uh, an interview that we recorded uh, back in May, and uh, we're really happy to be able to bring it to you finally. If you haven't read George R. R. Martin's uh, Song of Ice and Fire series, you should definitely do that. It's just one of the best book series out there right now. They're sort of epic fantasy and kind of noteworthy for having an emphasis on courtly intrigue and politics and a gritty, unromanticized view of life in a medieval society and morally ambiguous characters and sparing use of magic. You know, it's not like Harry Potter where everyone's got a magic everything. You know, when Song of Ice and Fire, the magic is, just comes in at moments of high drama. And also, uh, the series, there's a, a real willingness to have bad things, shockingly bad things, happen to major characters. And the first book in the series is called Game of Thrones, and it's currently being adapted into a series by HBO. Yeah, what did HBO describe it as? Like, uh, The Lord of the Rings meets The Sopranos yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah. So that kind of, that's kind of a good shorthand way of letting you know what it's like. Yeah, so everybody uh, watch that, because we're really hoping it does well, because we want to see more stuff like that on, on TV. Also, that's a good reason to read the books now. You know, get it on the ground floor before uh, you know your visions of the characters are all uh, changed <laughs> by what you see on the tel on television. Uh, so get the mental picture first, and read the books first, and then you know see the adaptation later. And uh, we should note that you know we uh, we set up this interview with George, and he agreed to talk to us for forty five minutes, and uh, asked if we could cover not just Song of Ice and Fire and uh, and the HBO adaptation. He says you know he has all these other projects that he wanted to talk about as well. And so we, we started drawing up questions and actually figured we, have, we had enough questions to fill up the whole interview with that. So we figured we would just ask him about all the other stuff he's got going on. And then John and I would talk about Song of Ice and Fire after the interview because I follow the, all that news closely enough that I feel like I, uh, I know everything that George is prepared to make public about the series. And we could talk about all that stuff. You, you probably could have told him a few things he didn't even know. <laughs> 
But then as, as you'll hear, we actually got to the end of our interview and George said, hey, we could keep going. We could talk about some ice and fire stuff. So we, we did end up with the chance to ask him a couple questions about that as well. So we're really grateful to George for joining us on the show and answering so many questions for us. And we really hope you enjoyed the interview, uh, which we'll get to right after this word from our sponsor. New from Brilliance Audio, book one of the Inheritance Trilogy, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms by N.K. Jemison. Gods and mortals, power and love, death and revenge. She will inherit them all. Yena Dar is an outcast from the barbarian north, but when her mother dies under mysterious circumstances, she is summoned to the majestic city of Skye. There, to her shock, Yena is named an heiress to the king. But the throne of the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms is not easily won, and Yena is thrust into a vicious power struggle with cousins she never knew she had. As she fights for her life, she draws ever closer to the secrets of her mother's death and her family's bloody history. Yena will learn how perilous it can be when love and hate, and gods and mortals, are bound inseparably together. The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms by N.K. Jemison, Narrated by Cassandra Freeman. Available now from Brilliance Audio and wherever audiobooks are sold. Well, let's travel back in time to May and get George R. R. Martin on the phone. Hello there. Uh, hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi there. How you doing? This is George. So you're an avowed comic book fan, and several of your works are currently being adapted into graphic novel format, including Fever Dream and Doorways. Could you tell us a, a little bit about those projects? Yeah, I did. I am a comic book fan. I, I uh, started many, many, for too many years ago as a, as a kid, uh, writing for comic fanzines and uh, having letters published in the uh, the Marvel comics of the 60s long before I started making my professional sales. So I've always, always loved comic books and uh, superheroes. In the last few years, I've had a number of comic publishers approach me wanting to uh, wanting to do uh, some sort of project with me. Uh, of course, while I would love to do uh, actually write something original for the comic books, I really don't have the time to do that. There's, there's a limited number of hours in the day, and I can only juggle so many balls at one time. So... Uh, I can't do anything original. So what I do suggest then uh, is the uh, adaptation, uh, comic adaptation of some of the things I've done. Uh, Fever Dream is a historical horror novel that I originally wrote back in the early 80s. And uh, that is currently being done by Avatar Comics. It was adapted for comics from my novel by uh, my good friend Daniel Abraham, who did a wonderful job. It's a 10-issue miniseries. Uh, first issue just came out last month at the uh, Chicago uh, Comic Expo C2E2, and I came in for that and did a uh, did a premiere event there to, to help launch the book. So it'll run ten monthly issues, and then uh, then it'll be collected into a graphic novel. The artist by the Spanish artist Rafael Lopez. So that's one, and then the other one that you asked me about doorways. Um, doorways was one of the pilots I did during my time in in television. It was the uh, Perhaps the one that uh, got along furthest. It was an alternate world series, a pilot for an alternate world series that I wrote originally for ABC while I was at Columbia Pictures, and uh, they liked it, and uh, they gave us a green light, and we we shot the pilot uh, starring George Newbern and a wonderful actress named uh, from France named Amla Gurnick and some other uh, great people, uh, Rob Nepper, Tisha Putman, Hoyt Exton, um, so we had a we had a terrific uh, pilot, I thought, 
But unfortunately, ABC did not pick it up, and uh, we were not able to place it elsewhere. But I've always loved the characters and the stories. We At one point, when it did look like we were going to pick it up, ABC actually ordered six backup scripts. So I spent about half a year uh, writing one of those and supervising the other five that were written by other people. So there's a considerable backlog of uh, of door stories that are available. So mm. we're, I'm launching that one with a, a comic company uh, called IDW, mm. and that's in the much earlier stage of development. We haven't. We're still uh, at the conceptual stage and and working things out. And they'll probably be working directly from my script, without the need for an adaptation, since the uh, the screenplay teleplay form and the comic script form are you know pretty close to each other. It's something an artist can work with and. Uh, you know, we hope to make that. We're going to do the pilot initially, adapt the uh, the pilot episode to the comics form. But if that's successful, it proves to be a popular comic. Uh, that could be an ongoing thing where we could we could uh, adapt the later backup scripts and follow the adventures of characters at least that far. And after that, uh, as as if we were a TV series, uh, perhaps commission some new material to further adventures of uh, of uh, Tom and Cat, the two uh, lead characters there. Okay, so you and Gardner Doswal have been editing some anthologies lately, uh, one of which was Songs of the Dying Earth, a Jack Vance tribute anthology. You know, there's another anthology Gardner and I are doing called Warriors. Uh, you may be familiar with Warriors just came out uh, in March. And uh, Warriors is a big cross-genre anthology about uh, uh, warriors, obviously, but it's not just a science fiction or fantasy anthology. we got uh, a wide variety of writers from many different genres. Uh, we wanted to... Uh, not restrict ourselves to one genre. So there are mystery stories and romance stories and mainstream stories in there. But when we were putting together Warriors, one of the one of the first uh, people I approached was uh, Jack Vance, through mm. his agent, uh, uh, who is also one of my agents, because uh, I love Jack's work and uh, you know the chance of uh, having something new for Jack for this this big anthology would have been would have been a dream of mine. But unfortunately, Jack is. Uh, is in his 90s and is his he's blind uh and he's not really writing much anymore he was working on his memoirs then which are such a came out come out but we were told that he probably would not be doing any more fiction and that made me very sad because as i said vance is a, a tremendous influence on me a tremendous writer one of my favorite science fiction and fantasy writers of all time and the idea that there would be no more of his wonderful stories um Sad me, and then I got the idea. Well, look, uh, maybe maybe he would be willing to have other people write some stories in some of his universes, particularly the Dying Earth, which was uh, one of his his first uh, creations. Uh, his the original Dying Earth book came back and came out in the early fifties, and has been one of the most seminal um, universes, I think, in in the entire history of fantasy. It ranks up there with the Hyborian Age and Middle Earth uh, as a as a setting for great fantasy. So uh, we, we approached uh, Jack through, again, through uh, his agents about doing this, and he was willing. So we worked out the terms of that, and then we went ahead and did this uh, tribute anthology to Jack. Using uh, He gave us permission to use his world and his characters, and we solicited writers who we, uh, we thought had mentioned at some point uh, being Vance fans or whose work to our minds uh, showed evidence that they were, they were Vance fans. Uh, and indeed, uh, boy, it was the easiest anthology to fill up that I've ever worked <laughs> on because people were just so eager to be a part of it once they heard of it. People 
people were saying, well, I'd, I'd write for this anthology for free. I'd crawl over <laughs> broken glass to be part of this anthology. You can't possibly keep me out of it. We even got stories from about four or five people who we, we did not invite, but who heard about it from some other way and uh, wrote stories entirely on spec and sent them to us. It's a terrific book, uh, and, and we had everybody write a, an afterward uh, about how, how they first discovered Jack Vance and the influence he had on his own work. And Jack himself contributed a, a short preface to the book, and Dean Koontz wrote an appreciation. So we, we got some great people in there. That's an anthology I'm very pleased with. Another of your recent uh, books you put together is uh, called Songs of Love and Death. Uh, it comes out in November. Uh, what was the idea behind that one? Well, I talked a little about Warriors, which which came out um, in March. Uh, Warriors, as I said, was a cross-genre anthology. You know, I read in a number of a number of different genres, and and uh, I talk in the introduction to Warriors about uh, how when I was a kid in Bayonne, New Jersey, there were no bookstores in Bayonne. So uh, when I started reading books as opposed to comic books, I bought them all off uh, paperbacks, off a wire spinner rack that was right next to the comic books in my local candy store. And in that spinner rack, there were no sections. Every All the books were jumbled together, usually only one or two copies of each. So if you wanted to find out, uh, you know, looking for a science fiction, you had to kind of look through every pocket and not just look at the book in front, but look at the book behind, which could be different. And, um, you know, I got very practiced at looking through the whole thing. And, and uh, I was mostly a science fiction fantasy fan even then. But I would come across some other interesting books. I would come across a... Uh, a mystery novel that looks sort of interesting, and I might uh, take that home. I would come across a classic of literature, uh, you know, um, Tale of Two Cities, and I, I would say, "Oh, I read the, I read the classics comic book of this. Let's try the real, uh, the real book." And I would pick that up. So dealing with the spinner rack, as I did, sort of uh, accustomed me to to reading fairly widely in a variety of genres, or at least being familiar with them enough to pick them up and look at the blurbs. I think we've lost that in, in today's uh, today's bookselling environment because most people buy their books from bookstores. Everything is completely segregated. If you're a fan of science fiction, you go into your bookstore, you go to the science fiction section. You don't even look at what else is in the other sections. The mystery fans are similar going to the mystery section. I, Gardner and I wanted to break that down a little because we're, we both read in a variety of genres, and we know there's many, many good writers out there that – I think people would enjoy uh, if they would only discover them. So we put together this Warriors anthology about uh, drawing writers from, from all different genres. That was the, the first of these cross-genre books we've done, but it was successful enough, and we had uh, enough fun doing it that we decided to do more cross-genre anthologies. And Songs of Love and Death uh, is one of those, and that one we deliberately set out to, to cross science fiction and fantasy on one hand, with romance on the other. Uh, both very popular genres. You guys presumably are coming from the science fiction and fantasy side of the equation with your geek show. <laughs> um, so you may not be aware that in over in the romance section, there's a growing subgenres of science fiction romance and fantasy romance, time travel romance. These are, these are uh, very popular genres that romance fans are reading about. And so they're sort of reading science fiction and fantasy without even realize that they're reading science fiction and fantasy. And the science fiction and fantasy fans are not aware of those writers. Similarly, uh, love stories, I mean, back in the 70s when I broke in, I was considered, widely considered a very romantic writer because uh, a lot of my stories were about lost loves among the stars and things like that. Uh, 
including uh, my first Hugo winner, Song for Leia. So it seemed like a natural for us. It was, it was actually Gardner's idea. Our initial title was Starcrossed Lovers, and we recruited from, from both the uh, science fiction and fantasy communities and uh, from the romance community and assembled this, uh, this book that we hope will uh, cross over and appeal to fans from, uh, from both uh, sides of the fence and maybe help people discover some new writers that they would like to read more of. Okay, so Warriors includes your Duncan Egg novella, The Mystery Night. Uh, do you have plans to write any other shorter works? Uh, one of our listeners specifically wants to know if there will be any more Haviland tough stories. I have more tough stories I would like to tell, yeah. It's just a question of when. You know, there's only one of me, unfortunately, <laughs> and uh, there's only so many projects I can do at one time. But I would love to do more tough stories. I have an idea for a tough novel. I have an idea for a bunch of other stories. I'd like to revisit the character. But I also have a sequel to Fever Dream that I want to write someday. I have... Uh, some new books that I want to write. And before I can do any of that, I need to finish Song of Ice and Fire, which, of course, uh, I'm still working on the fifth book, and then there's a sixth and a seventh book beyond that. Each of these books is taking me years to complete. So I don't know. Will I ever get back to tough? Uh, maybe. You know, it depends on how long I live and how long uh, I can continue to be uh, productive. I make no predictions on any of these scores. <laughs> Other recent work you have out are a couple new volumes in the long-running Wild, Wild Cards Shared World uh, Superhero Anthology Series. Uh, what's the current state of Wild Cards, and what can we look forward to in the future? Well, uh, actually, I was just working uh, on the latest Wild Card book, uh, As You Rang, Volume 21, which is, uh, although we don't use the numbers anymore, but it's the 21st volume in the, in the series. It's called Fort Freak. It's uh, sort of a return to uh, Joker Town, which was, a setting for many of the early wildcard books, Joker Town in New York City, down around the Bowery, uh, but it hasn't been featured so much in the, uh, in the later books, but we're, we're coming back to it now and it's kind of, uh, police work in the wildcard universe, what, it, what it's like for the, uh, the fifth precinct, which is right in the middle of Joker Town and therefore is given the name Fort Freak. And, uh, we're telling some stories of that. The first wildcard book, Wild Cards 1, which originally came out in 1987, is going to be reissued by Tor in hardcover in November with three brand new stories in it that were not included in the first edition. So we got some extra material there and, of course, the classic things. So we, we hope to proceed on two fronts with Wild Cards until one, one uh, front uh, has the old books reissued. Uh, you know, they, some of them have been out of print for a long time. Um, there's a great demand for them. I mean, you can look up a, a few of them have become extremely valuable books on Abe and uh, from used bookstores and rare book dealers uh, simply because of the demand for them. At the same time, we're doing reissuing the old books. We want to continue to do new books. We have some great new writers, some terrific new characters, so we're working on that. And there's also uh, Wildcard Comics. You know, we've had a Wildcard comic uh, written by Daniel Abraham called The Hard Call. It uh, came out from... Uh, from the Dabble Brothers, DB Pro uh, ran into some publication delays there, but DB Pro has now been taken over by Dynamite, and uh, they have uh, smoothed out all the problems. So the last issue of that uh, comic series will be coming out pretty soon, and then after that uh, it'll be collected into a graphic novel, and we're talking about uh, another wildcard series. So there have been a lot of other sort of shared world anthology series over the years, but uh, none really as successful as wildcards. Um what what advice do you have to anyone else attempting to launch a shared world series? And uh, I mean, do you think there there should be more of those? Because uh, really, the wild card is the only one currently going. 
Yeah, uh, they were big rage back in the 80s. Uh, Thieves World was the one that led the way. And Thieves World was enormously successful for a time. I mean, at its at its peak, uh, they were probably doing better than, than anybody. Um, but at a certain point, they they petered off. And then there were many others. There was uh, Leavac, Ithkar. Those were uh, Merovingian knights. Those were all uh, fantasy-shared worlds like Thieves World. There was War World, uh, Heroes in Hell. Uh, there was a horror-shared world called Greystone Bay. Uh, for a while, like everybody had their shared worlds. Um, now, you don't see that anymore. Uh, pretty much we are the only one that's, uh, that's survived uh, the intervening 20 years. I actually think the shared world is a, is a very interesting form. It's a bunch of writers working together. In some ways, it's like working on a TV show if you can assemble a good staff, but it's very demanding. I mean, you need, uh, editing a Wildcards book is ten times more work than editing something like Warriors or, or uh, the Vance Anthology uh, because all the stories have to fit together. So you not only have to edit the stories for quality, but you have to edit the stories for continuity and uh, to make all of the parts assemble into a greater whole. So it's a, it's a demanding task for an editor, and, and it takes a certain kind of writer, too. Some writers are loners, and they like being loners, that doesn't work in a shared world. You really need uh, to be team players, writers who enjoy working with each other, writers who don't mind rewriting. There's always a lot of rewriting involved to make the stories fit together. But I'd love to see more good shared worlds. I enjoyed the form. you got to pick your personnel very carefully, though, when you have to have a good, strong premise, which I think Wildcard does have. And uh, you got to have a set of operating rules. Wildcard's coming along like uh, the fourth or fifth shared world after some of the others had come out. We were able to learn from the experiences of the others, uh, particularly from Thieves' World, where uh, Robert Asprin and Lynn Abbey, the editors of that, uh, shared with me many of their uh, trials and tribulations. And we were able to set up operating rules that I think have worked very, very successfully for us and avoid some of the problems that Thieves' World ran into. Okay, so Wild Cards originally grew out of a role-playing game. Do you still belong to a gaming group? And if so, what games have you been playing lately? Uh, I, I do belong to a gaming group, but uh, unfortunately, I haven't played any much in the last year, so uh, our group seems to have been dissipating a little. Most recently, we were we were playing a space game, and before that, a, a game set in ancient Rome, which was like a straight historical game. We were all playing, you know, rising Roman politicians and soldiers at the end of the late Republic, hobnobbing with Julius Caesar and Pompey and Crassus and people like that. Uh, so in a recent blog post, you wrote that most readers would probably be shocked to learn how many of their favorite authors have no health insurance whatsoever. Uh, what's it like trying to obtain health insurance as a full-time fiction writer, and what do you think could be done to improve the situation? Well, I mean, ideally, what America needs is, is a single-payer health plan like they have in Canada or Australia or New Zealand. You know, while I think that the recent health uh, act that uh, – President Obama passed is a is a wonderful step in the right direction. I wish that he had gone a lot further and and uh, had managed to have the political support to get through a true single payer plan. But yes, um, you know I've been lucky uh, because I'm I do very well. I, I especially with Ice and Fire, and um, before that I worked in Hollywood. So while I worked in Hollywood for that decade, I had. Uh, I had a health plan through the Writers Guild, which is an excellent plan. And then when I stopped working in Hollywood, I was able to cobra for a number of years. So I kept my coverage through that. 
And then, thankfully, New Mexico has a state law. We have something called the New Mexico Health Insurance Alliance, which guarantees acceptance if you're coming off of COBRA. But it's a little tricky. I mean, if I had delayed uh, a month when my COBRA was about to expire, if I had delayed a month so my COBRA actually ended, then I would not have been able to get health insurance because that automatic guarantee under state law would have would have not kicked in. And, of course, I, as I said, I know a lot of writers who are not as lucky as me who, who um, haven't had Hollywood, and you can only get COBRA if you're coming off an employer health thing. And people have had uh, pre-existing conditions, people who have, you know, once upon a time we were all in our 20s and we were all <laughs> healthy and we didn't need health insurance. And when you're a young writer, as I was, as many of my friends were back in the 70s and the 80s, maybe you're not making much money, uh, but you don't want to get a day job. You're trying to make it as a full-time writer. And you're young and healthy. Health insurance seems like a luxury. So you don't, you don't get it. Uh, and then the years pass and suddenly you're not as healthy as you were. And suddenly it's more expensive because now you're older. And if you wait too long and actually get sick, then you're really screwed because now you have a pre-existing condition and they won't take you. But it's terrible. I mean, right now the situation in science fiction and fantasy is, uh, is uh, not good because a lot of writers of my generation, the baby boomers, are are now getting to the close to retirement age, and uh, they're getting older, they're getting sicker, and and as I said in that post, uh, you would a lot of people would be surprised at how few of them have health insurance or who have good health insurance. They may have some kind of ridiculous plan, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't cover it. Insurance companies will screw you if they all can. We did get uh, SFWA, the Science Fiction Writers of America, back in the 90s, did manage to uh, get health insurance through Aetna for all of its members. It was, uh, you know, it was not required, um, but it was open to all CIFL members. You could get this health insurance. It wasn't a great plan, but it was better than nothing. And unfortunately, SFWA has like 1,400 members. I think like 200 members signed up for the for the health insurance because the other 1,200 were. I don't know, they, they had a better plan through their day job, the ones who had day jobs, some of them had plans through their husband and wife, were covered by families, some of them, I guess, were young and healthy and figured they didn't need it. But for the 200 who had it, had the, uh, the Aetna plan, it was, uh, it was a godsend. It was, uh, it was very good. Um, but then we only away were off it for like, uh, three years, and, uh, then Aetna decided that they would just drop us all. And they did. They couldn't drop us in New York State because New York State had laws that once an insurance company insured people, they had to continue to insure them as long as the premiums continued to be paid. So the SFWA members who were in New York State were still covered. But in the other 49 states, we all got just dropped, even though we had paid our premiums on time. And no other insurance company was willing to step forward and and, uh, make a deal with SFWA. We do uh, in SFWA have a medical emergency plan where we raise money through auctions of donated items at conventions, and we're we're able we have enough money in that fund now that if a member has a medical emergency, we can give them a ten thousand dollar interest free loan. But number one, it's a loan, <laughs> and number two, it's limited to ten thousand dollars, even with the money we save. And as you know, if you get a serious illness, you can go through ten thousand dollars in a week. In fact, if you have to have some certain kind of surgery, uh, that's $10,000 right there. Boom, is gone. 
Um, so it's not really enough. But hopefully the country is finally moving in a direction that uh, this won't be the, the crisis this is and we'll have the kind of security that uh, people in Australia and New Zealand and England and France and most of the uh, first world have. You've taught before at the Odyssey Writers Workshop and will be teaching this summer at Clarion. Uh, what's your approach when it comes to teaching writing and did you have any writing, writing mentors yourself? I never went to Clarion or any uh, similar group um, as a writer myself, um, although I was aware of them. But I formed my own workshop back when, when I was living in Chicago, the Windy City Writers Workshop, which was based on the Milford method Clarion, which is Clarion too. Clarion grew out of Milford. Damon Knight's famous uh, group and uses the same method where you intensive critique of stories under discussion. And that's basically what we do at Clarion or, or in Odyssey is uh, the writers submit stories and uh, you criticize them. And not only do you get individual notes on the story, but I think some larger themes inevitably emerge from the uh, criticism. So that's pretty much what I'll be doing at Clarion. I, I do have occasional lectures on specific topics that I may throw in if uh, if the time permits, but it's not a it's very much an active workshop. I mean, I also have taught at other workshops uh, over the years that are what I would call more passive workshops, where you have a series of lecturers come in and you have uh, you know a hundred students are sitting in a room and you give them a lecture about characterization or something, and you know that may have its uses, but it's not. It's not nearly as useful, as, to my mind, as the clarion or approach, where you're you only have a small group of like 15 to 20 people, and you're dealing with their actual work, and they're getting intensive criticism of that work. In in case of clarion, it's uh, it's six weeks, and they get six different teachers, so you you also get a variety of viewpoints in there, and the teachers may not even necessarily agree with each other, but that's good, too. You get exposed to different philosophies about writing and so forth. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Wild Cards Number 1 is being re-released. Uh, I heard you tell a story once about that, where you were saying that the only time you ever saw Roger Zelazny lose his temper was in connection with that book. Could you talk about that? Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, as you said, Wild Cards came out of a role-playing game. So when we first decided to adapt it, I, I went outside. We, the, the core group who, who began Wild Cards were the people who had been in the game. Uh, myself, Melinda Snodgrass, John Joseph Miller, Dick Milan, Walter John Williams. But we needed more writers, so we went outside of that group and I recruited people I knew who were comics fans, including Roger Slazny and Howard Waldrop. <laughs> um, and Howard... Um, I, I love Howard. He's my oldest friend. He's a, one of the most brilliant short story writers in the field. But Howard is a, is a stubborn coot, and it's impossible <laughs> to get him to do anything he doesn't want to do. And he, he does things in his own way. And Howard insisted that he would do a story for us, but uh, his story had to be set in 1946. And in particular, it had to be set on September 15th, 1946. Uh, that was the day his story took place, the climax of the story anyway. We had initially planned to begin Wildcard uh, in 1986, which was when we were writing the book, would begin in the present. But if we wanted Howard in the book, we had to start it in 1946. It was actually good that Howard insisted that he do that because uh, uh, it really made the first book special. I think we were able to present 40 years of history because we didn't want to stay in 1946. So, of course, we wanted to get up. So the first book, Wildcard's One, covers from 1946, Howard's story, which opens the book, all the way up into 1986, which was the present at the time that we were writing that book. 
the thing you have to remember about 1946 was that uh, September 15, 1946, is in addition to the day that the wild card is released on Earth and as dramatized in the book, it also happens to be Howard Waldrop's date of birth. Hmm. That was the day on which Howard was born. <laughs> so Howard is writing his story. We're all writing his stories. And Roger, who's, who's part of it, created this character, Croyd, who was uh, like in, in, uh, in junior high when wild card day happens and he was going to set his story in 1946 roughly through 1950 but it began in 46 and he wanted Croyd at school and looking up and seeing Howard's uh, jet boy character fighting in the sky and then walking home as uh, the wild card is released and the world changes around him so so he asked Howard the one thing he needed from Howard he said what day what day of the week is uh, is September fifteenth, nineteen forty six? Because it's crucial that the, you know it be a school day. And how is that? It's a Tuesday. So Roger writes his whole story based on the fact that uh, his character is walking home from school, and it's a Tuesday. And his story is finished. Howard's story is finished. And and you know we were having some sort of conference or something uh, at my house, and and we had like Howard on the speakerphone or something like that. And Roger was sitting in my living room smoking his pipe, and I don't even remember how it came out, but suddenly it actually comes out that September 15th, 1946 is a Sunday. <laughs> and as to what time, as I say, I saw Roger lose it. He just said, oh, fuck, and he took his pipe out, and he threw it across the room and bounced it off the wall here. And Howard was sort of, oh, uh, it's a Sunday? I, I, I was always told I was born on a Tuesday. That's what my mother always said. <laughs> So he never bothered to look it up. So we got that inconsistency there in Wildcard, <laughs> which uh, at that point it was too late to uh, change without essentially trashing Roger's entire story, which we weren't about to do. So so we just gritted our teeth and uh, hoped that no one would notice, which indeed, <laughs> as far as I know, no one has except when I tell this damn story. <laughs> <laughs> These days when you do a book signing, hundreds of people are likely to show up, but it wasn't always that way. Could you talk about the time you did a signing at the same time as Clifford the Big Red Dog? Uh, sure, that was one of my more memorable um, disastrous signings. <laughs> uh, that was on the um, the book tour for Game of Thrones, the first book in the in the series. Uh, the hardcover just come out. Of course, it was my first novel in some time, and because uh, I'd been working in Hollywood for most of the last ten years, and the series wasn't yet uh, huge, uh, so I was not getting uh, large turnouts at most of my signings. Um, turnouts range from. I don't know, a couple dozen, I suppose, at the biggest, to, to uh, hardly anybody at all at the smallest. And that was a case, uh, I was touring Texas. Uh, they had me in Houston and Austin and uh, Dallas. And it was, uh, at the, I believe it was at the Dallas stop. And we arrived at the, um, the bookstore. It was one of the chain bookstores, I recall. And the parking lot was full, and there were all these people getting out of their cars and going in. And I thought, well, this is... This is good. It looks like uh, this one signing will be a will be a large signing at least. Uh, of course, I discovered uh, when I got in there that there were two signings. I was signing in the front of the store, and in the back of the store, as you have said, uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog was signing. And so I had like three people, and Clifford had like hundreds. Um, Clifford, the way Clifford the Big Red Dog tours, I discovered by uh, asking, since I had a lot of time to converse with the store manager. <laughs> was they have this uh, moth-eaten, uh, sweat-stained Clifford costume uh, that they ship from store to store. And it's like whoever is the junior employee at the bookstore has to put it on and uh, pretend to be Clifford and woof at the children as they come by. And, and, and they have a, 
one of his hands is like a rubbery thing, and he has a huge uh, red ink pad that he he steps in. So his signature is a paw print, uh, hmm. a red ink paw print on the uh, on the book. And he was busily slapping the books while I uh, signed my signature a few times. So it was a humbling experience. Hmm. It's, uh, writers need things like that, I'm sure, to keep it, uh, keep it modest. <laughs> keep us modest, otherwise our ego might get out of control. Okay, uh, so Song of Ice and Fire has also been adapted into various games, a board game, a collectible card game, role-playing game, and an upcoming computer game. Uh, how involved are you in the development of those games, and have you had a chance to actually play any of them? I've played some of them. Uh, I've played the board game, most notably. I haven't played the card game. The, the, the rules are uh, very complicated. <laughs> I don't have the time. Uh, but, you know, whenever I make a, a license deal like that, I, I get certain rights of approval because I want anything coming out, uh, with my name on it or with the Ice and Fire name on it to have a certain standard of, uh, quality and to be, uh, you know, to be true to the books. But my approvals are limited to, um, the artwork where I consult with the, you know, what artists to hire and review particular artworks, um, and also uh, the the text, the, the stuff that says about the world and the characters, I review that for continuity. I don't look at any of the gaming stuff. I'm not uh, enough into the gaming universe to, to give expert opinions about the, the game mechanics or the rules or all that. So I just trust that my licensees uh, know what they are doing in that regard. Is there any news related to any of those games, uh, new stuff coming out, or can you tell us anything about the computer game or anything like that? Oh, the computer game is in development, but I can't tell you any more about it. I've seen some conceptual art that I really like. Uh, once again, I'm, although I reviewed some of the textual matters, I'm, I'm leaving all the game mechanics and stuff to the, to the folks at Cyanide, who are the, the French company that has licensed to rights. Oh, so other than games, uh, one of your hobbies is collecting miniatures. Uh, does that help inspire your writing at all? And are there any particular characters or scenes that you dreamed up as a result of working with your collection? Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> I, I mean, I enjoy collecting the miniatures. I've been doing it for, um, you know, like 15 years now. I have a pretty substantial collection, but um, it's just a hobby. Uh, they're beautiful. I enjoy doing that, like someone else might collect stamps and all that, but I, hmm. I don't think it uh, it really particularly affects the books. Dark Sword Miniatures, which is doing the licenses of the, uh, based on Ice and Fire characters, I do work with them closely on those miniatures and what they will look like, and uh, I give them notes on the the first sculpts, and they make changes and so forth. And that's a lot of fun because, you know, it combines uh, a hobby and a passion of mine with uh, with the work itself. Okay, so J.R.R. Tolkien rewrote sections of The Hobbit to make it more consistent with The Lord of the Rings. Is there anything in your earlier books that you wish you could go back and change in light of later developments, and do you think you might ever do something like that? There are probably things that I would like to go back and change, and by the time I finish the series, there might be more. I don't know that I would that I would ever do anything like that to the extent that I'm not sure how much Tolkien actually did that, but uh, I know Stephen King has done that with the Dark Tower series. He's done some fairly substantial revisions to the earlier books in light of things that happened in the later books. Uh, maybe, maybe. There's actually one thing under consideration right now. I can't say too much about it, but it might impact. It's very minor, though. It would be changing a character's name, changing the name of a minor character who, who for the television series. And if we go ahead and change that name, I, I might go back in the books and change his name in the books as well. 
so the later editions of the book, the minor character would have a have a different name, but it's still up in the air whether we'll actually do that or not. So that's really all I can say about it right now. So you're known for having fans who are very emotionally invested in your work. What are some of the more noteworthy examples you've encountered of fan activity connected to your writing? The Internet has really changed a lot of things about fandom, um, where people have web pages and blogs now where they used to publish fanzines and um, fan groups and things are a lot more common. Um, there, there have been, at this point, I think dozens of uh, fan websites devoted to uh, devoted to my Eyes and Fire series and at least one or two devoted to my Wildcard series. And some of those are still going strong. Others are have folded and gone and are now just fading memories. Others are, you know, still up there on the web but haven't been updated in five years, so they're kind of like ghost towns. <laughs> um, but the, the ones that are thriving are, are still thriving and they're getting hundreds of hits a day and uh, if not thousands and people are debating every aspect of the work and discussing it and that's all that's all very uh very gratifying. I I get the artwork that is sent to me by, by fans, uh, uh, things that they put up on DeviantArt and other web art sharing websites like that. Of course, at conventions, there's the the Brotherhood Without Banners, which is a sort of semi-formal uh, fan group that uh, grew out of some of the fans who would meet at conventions and start to throw parties. And they're they're terrific. They're uh, they they throw parties every year at Worldcon, usually the best party at a convention, and uh, they have uh, raffles and things like that to. Uh, pay for the parties and also to bring over their members from other other countries and, and places to attend who could not otherwise afford to attend. Uh, they've raised money for charity and uh, they volunteer to work at the convention, so they're, I have great fans by and large. You also have people naming kids after your characters and like I, I saw a photo of uh, you standing on a stage with a group of women dressed up as Melisandre and stuff like that. Yes, those were Spanish fans. Uh, the the bunch of Melisandros and Night's Watch. Uh, there's a Spanish fan group uh, called Ashai, uh, who who uh, are enormously active and uh, do all sorts of things like that. They're they're a great bunch. The Italian fans are also amazing. I uh, visited them last time I was in Italy. So it's a kind of a worldwide phenomenon, which is very gratifying to me. I'll I'll look forward uh, this year, of course, to World Cups in Australia. So I'll be going down there to Australia and to New Zealand and meet up, meeting some of my fans from those areas for the first time. That should be fun. Speaking of naming, I kind of I kind of want to change my name to Jet Boy, just because you know it's much cooler than John. Uh, well, that's a pretty cool name, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, what are some of your other upcoming appearances, and is there anything else in the works that you'd like people to know about? Uh, God, we've covered a lot of things. I have more anthologies coming out. Uh, as I said, I'm working on Wild Cards, and of course, I'm working on Dance with Dragons. And the big thing coming down the pike is uh, the HBO series, uh, which uh, starts filming in July. Uh, this is, of course, the HBO series based on Game of Thrones. And stars Sean Bean as Ned Stark and uh, Lena Headey as Cersei Lannister, Peter Dinklage as Tyrion Lannister, uh, Nikolai Kostarwaldo as Jaime Lannister, etc. And like a cast of thousands, uh, many of whom will die, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we filmed the pilot in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Morocco last year, and HBO has given us the green light for a 10-episode first season, and we will start filming again in July. Probably come on next March, next April, somewhere thereabouts. And if the series is successful, of course, then 
more seasons will be done after that. The plan is to do each book as uh, one season. Okay, well, I think we're uh, that's that does it for our questions, and we're at about forty-five minutes. So. Uh... Okay. Well, you, if you do want to add a few questions about Ice and Fire, I'm willing. I mean, you've you've covered all my other stuff, so we <laughs> can we can certainly ask about that too. Uh, okay, I had a couple questions, uh, like who's Jon Snow's mother, and who's, <laughs> who's Cold Hands, and, uh, no, like, um... I think I'll avoid those questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jet Boy, Jet Boy is Jon Snow. <laughs> <laughs> or a zombie. Zombies, and John, your, your zombie book must have kicked off something. There's, every time I turn around, there's more zombie stuff coming out these days. Yeah, everybody and their mother's doing a zombie book now. That's damn right. Yeah, it's it's amazing. <laughs> I have my zombie raising wildcard character. I obviously have to write more about her. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, on this whole zombie thing that's going on. Oh <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, Rand from the message board wanted to know sort of what had been some of the biggest surprises that had developed in the series. You know, as you wrote it. I don't know if anything really surprised me. There's nothing leaps to mind offhand. I, I kind of knew the broad outlines of where I was going, you know, before I got there. I mean, people always ask me how, to what extent the, the series is planned ahead of time, and you know, my usual answer there is to uh, to compare it to a uh, to a journey. Uh, like if I'm I'm in New York and I'm going to drive to Los Angeles, you know, I I look at a map and I know I'm going to leave New York and I'm going to take this road and I'm going to go through Chicago and then I'm going to head down along. Old Route 66 or something, and I'll go through the Southwest, et cetera, et cetera, and eventually I'll get to Los Angeles. So I know the principal places I'm going to go through and the roads I'm going to take. But what I don't know is the details of what's along the way. Where will I stop the first night um, to sleep? Where will I stop the second night? Where will the road be closed and I'll have to take a detour? Where will I pick up a hitchhiker? You know, that sort of stuff you discover along the journey. And it's the same way with writing. I know I know the principal events. I know the roads I'm going to take to get there. But I do discover things along the way, uh, things that come out in the actual writing. Uh, on your blog, you talked a lot about the untying the Miranis knot. Can you say anything about what uh, made uh, you have to keep rewriting that those sections? I'm still trying to unwrite it, <laughs> to uh, untie it. It's it's problematical. Well, you know, Marine, of course, refers to the the city on Slaver's Bay where where Daenerys Targaryen is left at the end of Storm of Swords. And she's the queen of that city, and she's trying to uh, to rule that city and to bring peace to the region. And she's faced with various challenges, both internal and external and personal. And there are various events that occur. Meanwhile, I have a number of other characters, viewpoint characters, and also secondary characters, who are making their way to her and are turning up uh, in marine at various points. So the chronology is kind of tricky because some of them left in at the end of Storm of Swords and some of them left at various different points during the course of Feast for Crows, which is not does not actually precede Dance with Dragons but occurs simultaneously with Dance with Dragons. So I have to figure out that chronology and when when will they get there, when everybody will get there. And then with the events that are actually happening in Marine with the war and the other things that are going on and you know, certain events that I could talk about that wouldn't make any sense to you or your readers because you haven't read about them yet. <laughs> well, does that happen before character X gets there, but after character Y gets there? And if so, character X would have a role in that, or character X would see part of that as a viewpoint. So I read it that way, and I said, well, no, maybe character Y should get there first, or maybe this would partly be from the viewpoint of character Z. Uh, he could have a different, you know, and 
it's just a, a tangle of events and arrivals and uh, viewpoints that are all coming together at one point. And I, I keep feeling that somewhere here there's an optimal answer where everything will fall into place and I'll find the most effective way of telling all of this intercutting between these uh, between these viewpoints and putting things together so that the events occur in the best possible thing. But if one event occurs before another event, it changes the events that follow. If someone is there as opposed to not being there, it changes what it is. So as I change my mind about this, I keep rewriting it too and trying to get to the best possible uh, unraveling of this knot. And I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> But I'm worrying at it, and <laughs> I think I'm making some progress. So, yeah, you know, Dance with Dragons is planned to be sort of a parallel novel to, to Feast for Crows. And you had said, depending on how things went, you might stick in some of the characters from Feast for Crows at the end. Do you have any sort of more sense of how that might go? Um, well, that that still is my intent. Um, in fact, I have some of those chapters already written. So there will be a chunk of, uh, of Dance you know the the two story the two books will start out in parallel, but then dance will continue on chronologically for a period after feast ended, uh, which will allow me to bring back some of the characters from feast for at least a chapter or two toward the end. But the 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 joker in the deck there is the the question of the ultimate length of dance. You know, as as you know, uh, there's a limit to how long a book can be. <laughs> That was one of the reasons I put the book because I was running up against that, and unfortunately, I may be running up against it again. I don't, I don't know. I have to. If Dance comes in below the length of Storm of Swords, I think I should be okay. If Dance winds up going longer than Storm of Swords, then I'm going to have to remove some material that I've already written for Dance because Storm of Swords was on the borderline of how long a book one can publish without it actually falling apart. And it's fine. <laughs> in which case, those chapters would be shifted over to the next book. Um, but I don't know. I, I'll, I'll have a better sense of all of that when I'm actually finished with this last piece of it. Season one of the HBO series is planned to cover the events of Game of Thrones. Um, right. Have you and the team thought ahead about how the rest of the series might be adapted if, if season one is uh, popular? I think season two would be Clash of Kings. Now, it might be a little... Clash is a little longer than game. Maybe instead of 10 hours... We'd be budgeted for 12 hours, but that's mm. HBO's decision and, and the decision of David and Dan when we get there. When we get to Storm of Swords, um, which is significantly longer than either of the first two books, then we might need to break it into two seasons or to mm. have a considerably longer season. I mean, one thing, if you look at HBO shows, it, it's not like uh, it's not like a network show. I mean, back in the old days, I mean, when I was working on uh, Beauty and the Beast and Twilight Zone, a full season was 22 hours, 22 episodes which they would inevitably order, like, the first 13 and the back nine, they would call it. They'd order 13 episodes, you'd make those, and if the show was successful, they'd order nine more, uh, the back nine, and then you'd be up to 22 episodes. That's broken down. I mean, I'm talking the 1980s, and that's no longer the rule, even in networks, but their seasons do tend to be longer. HBO seasons, if you look at The Sopranos or Rome or any of their seasons, the, the number of episodes in a season varies from season to season. Mm. Um, and I expect that will be true of our show too. Are you concerned at all that you know if they if the show starts and it's successful that that they'll sort of run out of the material that you've already published and that you know you'll sort of they'll sort of be waiting and then you know waiting for book six or or, or whatever it is at that time that uh, um, you know since it's taking you a, a couple of years to work on a novel um, and you know conceivably they could be doing a show each year or a season each year. Yeah, yeah, theoretically that's a danger, but I have an mm -hmm. enormous head start here. I have a huge mm -hmm. lead on them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, and I know how long it's taken me for Death of Dragons and for Feast for Crows before that, but I still cling to the belief, perhaps <laughs> mistakenly, that they're not always going to be that long. I mean, I have written books faster than this. I'm not mm-hmm. always this slow. I, I think these books have had particular problems that have delayed me. Uh, so maybe I, I will pick up speed again and I'll write the next book and, and it will take me five years. It'll only take me two years, um, maybe two and a half. Uh, that's what I think is about the right time that it should take me to do one of these monsters. I mean, way back in the beginning of the series and when I first contracted for him, I was estimating I could do it in a year, a book a year. Because that's what my earlier novels had taken. That's what Fever Dream had taken and mm. Dying in the Light and, and Armageddon Rag. Each of them took me about a year. But let's face it, um, these books are three times the size of those books. So there's no way I'm going to do a book of in one year. But two years, two and a half years, I think is about right. And and if I can do it that fast, I don't think HBO will ever catch up to me. Mm. I mean, in Feast for Crows and, and Dance with Dragons, there are so many characters and, and so many subplots going on, it seems like it might you might run into budget problems uh, with the show, I mean, which has sort of been... Uh, well, that would be consistent with my history. Yeah. I was Everything gonna... I ever did always ran into budget problems. <laughs> I mean, have you thought at all about whether they might want to streamline the events, and do you have any sort of... Um... Well, they're going to they're gonna have to do a certain amount of that. Um, I mean, we're already doing that with the first season, deciding what will be the speaking parts and what minor mm. characters can be cut or at least can be reduced to extras. I mean, you can have a character who is still there, you know, but but he no longer has any lines. So he's standing in the background, and you can look at him and say, oh, look, the, the cook is still there, but he no longer has the, the three lines that he has in the book. And that, of course, makes a big difference budget-wise, because instead of casting an actor, you're casting an extra uh, who is considerably cheaper. So that kind of stuff will happen, and events will have to happen, and and all that. Um, yeah, that's going to be part of the process. But it's uh, you know, it's not something you can solve in the abstract three years ahead of time. You, you simply have to do it episode by episode, and deal with each issue as it comes up. Do Do you find it kind of funny that you you said that you left Hollywood because they were always telling you your projects were too expensive, and you said, well, now I'm going to just go back to novel writing where I can have the massive scope that I want, and then that's the one that they want to try to adapt. Oh, yeah, I think, I think that's, there's a tremendous irony to it, but uh, one that I sort of appreciate. <laughs> it's a strange world we live in here. The more things go around, uh, they come around, right? <laughs> but that's fine. I mean, the issues are, uh, we'll, you know, I'm, I'm involved in the show, but I'm not the showrunner. So David Benioff and, and Dan Weiss are uh, on top of this, and they're great fans of the books. They're terrific writers in their own rights, and they're great producers, and they'll they'll have to deal with these problems as they come up, and I wish them every luck, <laughs> and I'm there to consult with if need be. So, uh, George R. R. Martin, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, I th- thank you. I'm glad to be here. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to George for joining us on the show. And we'll be back to talk more about George and his writing after this word from our sponsor. New from Brilliance Audio, The Zombies of Lake Wobegotten by Harrison Geeler. The town of Lake Wobegotten, Minnesota is a small town, filled with ordinary, yet above average, people, leading ordinary lives. Ordinary, that is, until the dead start coming back to life, with the intent to feast upon the living. Now this small town of above-average citizens must overcome their petty rivalries and hidden secrets 
in order to survive the onslaught of the dead. The Zombies of Lake Wobegotten by Harrison Geeler. Narrated by Phil Giganti. Available now from Brilliance Audio and wherever audiobooks are sold. So just for, for our regular listeners, we just wanted to give a quick update on kind of the state of the podcast since, you know, we've, uh, we've kind of been on hiatus for about four months. Um, so we're back, you know, we're on IO9 now, and we're planning at the moment to do uh, bi-weekly, you know, every, every other week rather than weekly. Uh, the weekly schedule is just insane, and it really created big problems if a guest canceled on us at the last minute. We, it was really hard to, to get the next episode out. So hopefully this will this will be a little bit more civilized. Hmm. Uh, and so one of the other things we're going to be doing uh, now that we relaunched is uh, we're going to be taking some listener donations. Uh, we had a number of listeners who asked if they could support the podcast in that way, and uh, previously we had we had no way of doing that when we were on Tor.com. But uh, here on IO9, uh, it's all cleared to go. And you know, if you want to make a donation, you can just go to PayPal and uh, send some money to GeeksGalaxy at gmail.com. And if you do that, we would appreciate it and you'd be helping support the show. And, of course, one of the other ways you can support the show is to, you know, go to iTunes and leave a review there, or, you know, you just come to here to io9 and, and leave comments, because that's the way, you know, our corporate masters know that uh, people are listening and enjoying the show. And also, you should buy lots of books from Brilliance Audio. <laughs> uh, all right, great. So now let's talk a little bit about George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, okay, so, so who is he again? <laughs> uh, well, he's one of my favorite authors. Um, I, I talked about this in an earlier episode, I think, but the first George R. R. Martin story I ever read was called Sand Kings. You know, I was in an airport one time and, I, and my flight was delayed and I had nothing to do. And I went to a bookstore and picked up a, a collection edited by Isaac Asimov called The Super Hugos. And, uh, and, the, and the story, this Hugo winning short story, Sand Kings, was in it. And I read it and, man, it just creeped me out so <laughs> much. And, you know, the, the least likely time that you're going to be scared is... When you're bored and sitting in an airport waiting for a flight, surround you know surrounded by hundreds of people, and just the fact that that story just it gave me chills just so much uh, in that situation. So wait, is this an alternate history story you're telling here? Because I can't believe that there was a science fiction anthology in an airport bookstore. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. I don't I don't know how it happened, but there it was. So yeah, and so that was you know that was the first thing by George that I read, and then actually when I went to the. Uh, the Odyssey writing workshop, one of our assignments was we were supposed to do a sort of close analysis of, of our favorite short story, and I picked that one. And, you know, out of there were 18 students or something, and there was somebody else in the class who had picked Sand Kings hmm. as his favorite short story, too, which I thought was a pretty amazing coincidence. Mm -hmm. It's a science fiction story about uh, alien pets who uh, get out of control. It was, it was funny, actually, when I did, uh, I, I attended Orson Scott Card's uh, Writer's Boot Camp uh, years ago. And a woman was telling a story about fumigating her house and, you know, all the problems she was having with, with bugs in this house. And, and somebody says, you know, wow, that sounds like a great idea for a science fiction story. Mm. You know, and Orson Scott Card says, yeah, it is. Unfortunately, it's already been written. It's called Sand Kings by George R. R. Martin. <laughs> I can't remember what the first George R. R. Martin story I read was. It may have actually been um, Game of Thrones. But, um, you know, since then, obviously, I've, re I've read a lot of his other stuff. But, um, you know, speaking of Sand Kings, that just reminds me of one of his other uh, horrific stories, um, which is a story called Meat House Man, which uh, I reprinted in The Living Dead. It's kind of an unusual zombie story in that it's like, uh, you know, it takes place in the far future and, you know, humanity's like settled other planets throughout the galaxy and all that. And the zombies in the story are actually, they're, they're sort of technologically reanimated corpses. 
the character is what they call a corpse handler, and, and it's sort of like they attach this rig to the corpses that al- allow uh, a living person to go into this control booth and control a bunch of corpses at the same time, you sort of as slave labor. But then um, shortly into the story, you learn that not only do they use it for slave labor, but they also use it for um, sexual gratification. And it's just really, really <laughs> creepy as the story goes on, I mean, with the, uh, you know, the different explorations of, of that aspect of the story. As the as a controller of the zombies, like because your brain is sort of connected to the zombie through this device, it has this sort of feedback loop. So when when they're having sex with the the corpses, it's like the most intense pleasure that they could, they could ever have because it's like there's a feedback loop going on, the, and the corpse sort of responds exactly as the person controlling it wants it to because of that feedback loop. So I thought that was really interesting, and it and it just it's just really kind of disturbing but and i mean there's other things about it about the story too that are sort of dark and creepy but i mean that's one of my favorites of his everyone knows song of ice and fire but he's, he's just such a great short story writer too and and fortunately um most of his stories have recently been released in a, a series of collections called dream songs mm-hmm. and I, I highly recommend people uh pick those up yeah and actually um i just reprinted a story of his in lightspeed called uh and for a single yesterday. And that story is not actually in James song. So um, Lightspeed is probably the easiest place to find it. I mean, it's because it's, it's the only place I found it was in a couple different. There's like an anthology that originally appeared in called uh, Epoch. But then, and then it was like reprinted in one of George's collections. But both are long out of print. You know, sort of sort of dug that up out of the, the history books. And, and it's really, really a very fresh story. Uh, you know, re- reads like a very contemporary story, even though it was written in uh, 1975. So, you know, it's worth checking out if you want to learn more about George, uh, you know, because you can go just go read it for free. Yeah, actually, I made a list here of some of my very favorite George R. R. Martin short stories. So I'll just mm-hmm. I'll just read these and people can go check them out. Uh, a Song for Laia, In the Lost Lands, Sand Kings, Night Flyers, uh, The Monkey Treatment, Unsound Variations, The Hedge Knight, and Portraits of His Children. Yeah, the Hedge Knight's really good too, and that you know that one's part of the Song of Ice and Fire, um, set in the same world. So I mean, that's actually a way for people to sort of sample the setting without you know diving headfirst into one of the novels, like if they're not ready for that level of commitment. Which was it was also adapted into a graphic novel too. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, George has a lot of great stories. I mean, Dream Songs is a great collection. I mean, just because it gives you such a comprehensive view of all of his different talents. Maybe I don't think you mentioned uh, Skin Trade. Mm. Um, that's the big werewolf novella that he has in there. Um, I mean, that's uh, that's a really good one, I think. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, actually, and if you like audiobooks, um, as you might listening to a podcast, um, the Dream Songs audiobook is actually pretty awesome. You know, because it's like it's broken up into three volumes, which is a little lame, but it's broken up into three volumes, and so they're able to you know include almost all of the stories in the book. Because whereas most most anthologies or collections um, on audio, they just abridge it and you know they just leave half the stories out. But um, with the Dream Songs one, even though it's a mammoth like two volume collection in book form, um, they've included almost all the stories in the audio book, and and and, and most of them are very very well narrated. Um, there's a couple narrators in there that I didn't like, but I'm actually because the guy who narrates the Song of Ice and Fire audio books, like I. Really really dislike and he, and he read some of the books on in the in the collection as well but uh but generally they're very good um the guy who reads um hedge knight is very good as i recall and some of the others are, are excellent as well but no yeah so so actually when i was when i was at the odyssey workshop this guy who also you know listed sand kings as his favorite short story uh, this guy danny uh he told me i had to read song of ice and fire mm. and uh, at the time i was really kind of down on epic fantasy i would basically given up on epic fantasy i think i just you know read one too many bad mm-hmm. Dragonlance novels mm-hmm. and I was just kind of like, ah, I'm, I'm done with this. 
And uh, so it really took a lot to get me to pick up Game of Thrones in the first place. I had to have actually a couple people, you know, really recommend it to me before I. And it's such a you know it's it's it's, it's such a huge book that mm-hmm. you know you know it really takes a lot to get me to read a, a big thick novel like that. And and like each one's like longer than the last one, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like you're like oh my god, I mean, the first one's long enough, and then oh my god, look at this, look at the next ones. But yeah, so I read you know I read uh, I read Game of Thrones and just man from the the opening prelude chapter i was just like wow this is this is great one of the things about that series that really strikes me is just how strongly i feel about the characters i mean like Mm -hmm. like there's a character named joffrey i just hate him so much (laughs) just on a really just like visceral level i just hate him and i mean just the fact that a book just can make you just feel so such intense emotions about the characters i think is really really cool Mm-hmm. Um, especially in, in some of the later books. Um, we're, oh, we're going to try to keep this as spoiler-free as possible, uh, just so you know. But uh, in some of the later books, there are just some shocking events that happen, and and I, you know, I was just so devastated, you know, when some of these things happened. I mean, I just, mm-hmm. you know, sort of put the book down, and I was like, wow, I just, I don't know if I can keep reading. I'm just so, <laughs> I'm just so devastated by by yeah. what's happened. And, yeah, that's so rare to happen in any sort of entertainment. I mean, uh, I guess, I guess in movies, like you know, it's it's easier to get caught up in the in the moment sometimes because you know because they they have music and you have visuals to and and all this stuff sort of conspiring against your emotions to uh, cause you uh, you know to weep or something. But in in a book, I think it's really hard and very rare in fantasy to have such a affecting characters that would cause you to get that upset. You know, so I mean, I think it's really one of the things he does very well. It also helps that he's so brutal when it comes... It's like the reality is very... It's a very brutal reality that these characters live in. You know, I mean, it's like nobody's safe. In most epic fantasy, I mean, you know, you you know, you know, have your heroes and, and you know, the, all those heroes are basically going to survive all the way into the end of the series. And, and in Martin, it's just like, that's not this case at all. I mean, like, nobody's safe. I mean, it's like, you, you never know when some major character is going to end up uh, getting killed off or something, so... Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really interesting just because, you know, it feels very like, oh, well, okay, yeah, this is like high stakes here. It's funny, though, like hearing you describe how you ended up reading Song of Ice and Fire, because it's almost the same exact situation as I was in. I had also read a bunch of epic fantasy and I sort of burned out on it. It was just sort of a confluence of friends recommending the books to me and saying, oh, my God, they're so awesome. And it's just like, would you guys shut up? Or, okay, I'll read it. Just shut up already. So and so I did, and then it's like, oh, okay. Well, now I know guy why you guys wouldn't show up about this. But yeah, no, it took a lot of convincing for me to try it. You know, I mean, if I had been more familiar with his work previously, you know, I mean, I probably would have been inclined to just go ahead and try it. But um, you know, I wasn't familiar with him before. Um, I mean, except like I'd heard of him, but I hadn't really read him. And uh, so it took a lot of convincing for me to try it. But I'm glad uh, everybody convinced me to. Yeah, and I was certainly one of those friends. Yeah, oh yeah, God. <laughs> oh man, like, you know, to hear Dave and our friend Doug and, and our friend Andrea just like talk about Song of Ice and Fire, you'd think that they were talking about real people and real events that happened to them in their own lives. I mean, I would have to leave the room because they would be talking about all these spoilers and stuff. And it's like, I don't want to hear anything. You know, it's like, I'm going to read these things. I want to go into it fresh. Just to see how excited they got about it, it was like, you know, part of the reason that convinced me to read it. I mean, I, I could kind of see the same thing in all of us when we were like watching Battlestar Galactica and, you know, it was leading up to the finale and we we're all we we're all sort of like talking about, oh, well, what could happen? And then, you know, here's I have this theory about this or that. And of course, that ultimately disappointed us all and made us want to boycott anything else Ron Moore ever does. But we're hoping that George will uh, will not slow us down. And, and I, don't, I don't have any reason to expect he would. But, you know, I didn't expect that from Ron Moore either. But, you know, I believe in George. So 
Um, but I mean, I figure, I mean, there must be at least like 25 people I can think of that I've personally convinced to read the, you know, that have read the books because face to face, I told them to, to read it. Uh, there's actually a point where uh, the publisher put out really cheap copies of Game of Thrones, you know, really inexpensive copies. Like I think it was value priced at $3 or something. And and I just bought, I think, five and just gave them out to people. You know, like you have to read this. Uh, I sort of got my whole extended family uh, to read them as well. Even people who don't normally read, you know, fantasy novels, you know, would just get really, really into these books. So part of the reason that the series appeals to so many different kinds of people is that it largely reads like like a history of some alternate world, uh, you know, not Earth that just, you know, sort of, you know, where, where society and such is developed sort of differently because the magic is so low such a low level of magic and it's so in the background for most of the series non-fantasy readers can really get drawn into that i mean i think the thing that puts off a lot of uh sort of mainstream readers or whatever from fantasy is that the magic and stuff um is too much for them but then i think george martin has sort of just the right amount to to keep it at a level that it makes it very accessible yet is also you know totally satisfying to the people who actually crave that stuff there was a time, actually, you know, I had convinced, I, we were at a bookstore, I don't remember who I was with, and I had, had convinced someone to buy to buy Game of Thrones, and we were making our way toward the, the cash register, and two or three people, you know, just strangers, just exclaimed, oh, that's a great book, <laughs> just seeing it, you know, in my, yeah, friend, yeah. in my friend's hands, and I've never, see, I've never seen anything like that, it was, it, was, it was amazing. You know, one thing about epic fantasy series uh, that can be a challenge, too, is a lot of times there's so many characters to keep track of. Mm-hmm. I'll ask, I, I actually, I, I came across a list online one time of every named character in Song of Ice and Fire, you know, and then there's other, there's, there's other, you know, unnamed characters, you know, like extras and stuff. But so I'll, I'll ask people, you know, who've read this series, you know, how many named characters do you, do you think there are in mm-hmm. those, in those, it was, you know, in, in the four books that are out and, and people usually guess like, I don't know, 75 or a hundred or something. Mm-hmm. And there were actually over a thousand wow. <laughs> names on this list. Huh. I mean, when, when people, you know, complain about how long it's taking to write these books, I mean, just think of how long it would take you to sit down and write a thousand, you know, make up a thousand fantasy names, you know, just, just that, not even the story or anything, just, just, <laughs> just to come up with all those names. I mean, right. I mean, it's just a, a huge scale. And so actually, you know, so it's, so it's, you know, sometimes not easy to keep track of what's going on because it's so complex. And, and, and so actually there's a, um, a sort of fan artist um, named Amaka. Uh, A-M-O-K-A, or at least that's, that's his handle. And he did fan art for tons and tons of the characters for, I didn't count, maybe, I would say maybe 70 or 80 characters, you know, he did portraits of. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can go online and, and find them. I guess we'll have, we'll have a link in the show notes. And I found that really, really helpful for especially keeping track of, of some of the more peripheral, you know, sort of secondary characters. That's actually something I, I first noticed when, when I, you know, when I, um, would read uh, Roger Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber as a kid. I would sometimes have, you know, have trouble keeping all the characters straight. And then I got the role-playing game, and they had portraits of all the characters, and I found that so helpful just to have a picture to associate with the name. And you know how fantasy novels, they always have, like, maps and stuff, you know, at the beginning. I've always thought it would be kind of cool if they would just have portraits of all the major characters. Uh... For Song of Ice and Fire, you'd need a whole separate book for that. <laughs> but so, so that's, I mean, so it, it's cool to have those, those pictures of the characters. Um, and it's also really helpful to have pictures of some of the environments and things in, in the series. Um, there's actually this calendar mm. that just came out. Uh, uh, it's called the Song of Ice and Fire 2011 calendar, uh, illustrated by Ted Nasmith. They have a, a, a portrait for each month of one of the fortresses from the series. So like when I was reading, I always wanted a picture of what the, the, the area looks like, the, the sort of 
fortress on top of a, a really uh, high up mountain. Mm-hmm. And so it's and 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 George actually you know consulted on on this so like all the pictures of everything matches you know his visions of it and he actually uh, consulted with these uh, fan portraits too he actually went through them at one point and kind of gave notes and the guy changed some of them to make them conform more to what George was uh, mm-hmm. was saying. There actually is a Song of Ice and Fire role playing game too, isn't there? Uh yeah, I think there. Or is it just a some sort of board game? No, no. There's a I played the board game. The board game is actually a lot of fun. There is a role playing game. I mean there were. I haven't looked at it in, in detail. I mean, they brought out one, and then uh, the the company folded, I think, and and a company called Green Ronin did one. Uh, I'm not sure if that's that's the newest one, but yeah, I mean, there's all there are all sorts of uh, secondary you know materials. There's a there's actually a really good art book. I think it's called The Art of Ice and Fire, mm-hmm. um, where it's just collections of the best art that's been done for you know the the card games and the calendars and things. Um, there's an artist named Michael Comark who's just done some some really amazing um, ice and fire illustrations. The cover it's a, a picture of Jamie Lannister sitting on the Iron Throne. But actually, you know, you know, I was thinking that kids today they they grow up reading Harry Potter and like everyone's reading Harry Potter and they're all waiting for the next book. And there was nothing really like that when I was growing up. I mean, all the series I was reading were done already by the time I, I found out about them. And then I didn't know anyone else really who was reading the same same stuff I was, and there was no internet. And so, like, Song of Ice and Fire has really been, like, the one thing I've had, kind of like that, where it's been a series that, you know, mm-hmm. I sort of caught before it was finished and have sort of been involved in discussions online and things. And, and there's there's just a, a really uh, active online community discussing Ice and Fire. If anyone's a fan of the series you should de- and you're interested in, there, there, there's a, um, some great message boards about it and, and things. Um, but it's, so, so it's kind of been interesting just sort of from a sociology standpoint almost to see that kind of thing in action and you know because because when you just read the books you sort of pay an equal amount of attention pretty much to every chapter as you're reading it but then when people are trying to figure out what's going to happen next they fixate amazingly mm-hmm. on particular <laughs> moments that seem to mm-hmm. provide clues and so i mean like i read the first three books the first time through and there's a section in game of thrones where um ned stark thinks about something from his past uh, that happens at a place called the tower of joy and, you know, I barely remembered that from my <laughs> first read. And there's a place where in, in Clash of Kings where Daenerys Targaryen goes to a place called the House of the Undying, where she sees kind of like prophecies about the future. So just reading the series, you know, these things sort of just register. But when people are talking about the books, you know, these, these chapters just get talked about over and over and over and over again to the point where, you know, you practically have the whole thing memorized and people know every single line. And, you know, you've just read dozens of threads about what does this sentence suggest? And it's just funny to see how completely differently uh, people read uh, when they're sort of working as a community trying to solve the mystery. There are all these all these mysteries in the series and, you know, people have all sorts of theories about how to resolve them. And it's funny that, uh, you know, if you're if you're familiar with all these theories and you've been following it for years, then people, you know, someone will will join the message board for the first time, and they'll say, you know, you know, this may sound crazy, but I have this theory about who Jon Snow's mother might be, and, and everyone's like, oh yeah, come on, you know, just <laughs> look at the FAQ, it's yeah. topic number one, you know. You know what you were saying about this being the first time you've run into a series that wasn't finished, and you know you're waiting for the book. You know, I mean, that just makes me think of how some fans are so vicious towards Martin because it's taken so long for him to finish, uh, you know, the next volume. 
But, you know, there's all these fans that, like, leave, like, really nasty comments on his blog whenever he talks about anything but Song of Ice and Fire. They're just like, finish the book, George. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, it, I mean, it got to the point where people thought it was so ridiculous that, like, Neil Gaiman actually came out and was had a post that said, like, you know, George Martin is not your bitch. You know, he has a life. Leave him alone. <laughs> Harping at him to finish the book is not going to help. So I just think it's interesting how, how what a fervor people get whipped into, you know, over waiting for the book. And it's like, you know, even though they love him, they, they love him like nothing else. But yet they can still muster up this hatred for him because, you know, because he won't because he hasn't finished the book yet. It's kind of an interesting pathology <laughs> that um, you, you love something so much and then, you know, treat it with such disdain, you know, at the same time. Well, no, I mean, and, and Feast for Crows, you know, just covered half the characters. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, there's there are some big mysteries from the end of Storm of Swords that still haven't been resolved. And I mean, I, I read Storm of Swords, I think, in, in 2003. So, I mean, you know, yeah, it's like seven years. I think, I think it came out in 2001. So, I mean, some people have been waiting nine years, you know, to find out how these things, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen. And, uh, I mean, I'm certainly, you know, I, I certainly want to find out as much as anyone does and would love to see the book. But, I mean, I think as a writer, I just have mm -hmm. so much sympathy for George. I mean, just knowing how hard it is, you know, for me, I write, you know, and I, I've never even written a novel. I write short stories and just, you know, how much just an incredible amount of effort I put into writing, you know, a 7,000 word story. And then to think about writing, you know, a book, what, like 20, 20 or 30 times that long. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. I, I certainly have immense sympathy for anyone who undertakes a, a project mm -hmm. like that. I actually pre I predict that someone will uh, post in the comments to this uh, podcast that, that, you know, finish the book, George, or at least one of those, you know, like they won't even listen to the episode because they're like, <laughs> so furious at the thought that he took time to talk to this stupid podcast. If <laughs> you're writing Song of Ice and Fire. While everyone's waiting for the next book, I thought we might want to discuss a bit, you know, what other books people might like if they like Song of Ice and Fire. Because, uh, I mean, since the books have come out, I think there's been a lot of new epic fantasy that's been influenced by it. Uh, and then, you know, the first person I sort of thought of was Scott Lynch, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote this great book called The Lies of Locke Lamora, and he's written a couple of sequels since then. Because I've read it and I thought it was great, and it's obviously influenced by Martin, I mean, that's one of the reasons I thought of it. But the other reason is uh, I was at Worldcon one year, and George Martin was there, and I saw him and Scott Lynch at – actually, it was at, like, a George Martin party. There's this fan group called Brotherhood Without Banners, and uh, and they, so they, they throw parties at a lot of different cons. And so there was Scott – like, George was sitting in a chair, and Scott Lynch was, like, sitting on the floor, like, sort of looking up at him. And it was like, oh, look at this. It's like the student sitting at the feet of the master, you know, just learning. And so I, I just thought that was interesting because it's like – you know, it's like you, you just knew that he was influenced by him by reading the book but then you see that and like oh okay well there you go <laughs> Yeah, no, it is kind of funny that The Song of Ice and Fire has been going on so long that you actually, you know, people have like grown up and, you know, had careers in the time that people have been waiting between books. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely second the recommendation of Scott Lynch's Lies of Lacamora. That's a, a tremendously well done book. I would say, I mean, I would say also, you know, Rogers Lawsney's Chronicles of Amber. Mm -hmm. um, well, uh, that's I, a precursor though. Oh, yeah, are we only, just, I thought we were no, listening. No, 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 that's fine. I'm just saying it's worth mentioning it's a precursor, not, you know. Yeah, something. yeah, it's, it's a precursor, certainly, and I, I, would, I would argue it's a, an influence as well. Another thing along those lines is Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. You know, I just reread uh, Book of the New Sun, and, and there are actually tons of parallels between it really? and, hmm. and okay. Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I mean, like, well, I've always thought that the, the secrets after truth and penitence you know, was really similar to the Night's Watch. You know, they wear black and they have these, they've existed for a long time and so they've kind of fallen on hard times and they have all these rituals they don't really understand anymore. And, you know, if you think about like Jon Snow versus Severian, I mean, like one of yeah, the yeah. big mysteries of Book of the New Sun is like figuring out who, who everyone in um, Severian's oh, yeah. family tree is. And it's kind of yeah. a similar thing with Jon Snow. And 
there's like a huge wall around the mm-hmm. city of Nessus that's called the Wall, and there's the mm-hmm. big wall in the north. And mm-hmm. another one I just noticed actually was that you know in in Castle Black, you know, there's a a, a guy named Maester Amon mm-hmm. who's blind, and in you know the the Medicine Tower in Book of the New Sun, there's a a character named Master Palamon who's blind. Mm-hmm. You know, just yep. like stuff like that. Right. Right. Okay. You know, it, it's it's worth pointing out that you know it's called Book of the New Sun, but it's actually four books. So I mean, it's like a series as well, and you kind of have to read the whole thing. Not really like something that you would read the first one and then just stop. You really have to read the whole thing. But uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Sort of the books that we mentioned. Uh, I mean, a few come to mind that I haven't read, but I've heard that are you know good that are sort of along the lines of Martin, like um, Joe Abercrombie. Yeah. Um, uh, you know his epic fantasy books that are out now, and uh, Brian Ruckley specifically. Like I've heard these people are sort of disciples of George Martin. And uh, I mean, I think uh, well, you just read um, Swords and Dark Magic, right? The anthology. Yeah. Um. So I mean, well, would you recommend that for uh, Martin fans or? Well, I just I just started it. Oh. Okay. Um, but I mean, I'm I'm loving it so far. This is uh, an anthology edited by Jonathan Strand and Lou Anders, and it's it's called Swords and Dark Magic: The New Sword and Sorcery. Yeah, and it, it has um, you know Scott Lynch and Joe Abercrombie. I read both those stories, loved them, and there's a bunch of other stories I haven't gotten to yet. But it's got Gene Wolfe, Glenn Cook, Ursula Le Guin. I mean, it's just it's just a great lineup of authors who are writing great kind of sword and sorcery stuff right now. And there's been sort of a resurgence of, of sword and sorcery in the last uh, I don't know eight or ten years or so. Uh, I, I would say largely as a result of the success of, of Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, actually, you know, uh, speaking of Glenn Cook, I mean, he, he's an excellent author, to, I think, to recommend as well. I mean, between the Black Company series and the Dread Empire series, I mean, I think fans of Martin would also enjoy his work. You know, and, and since since uh, Feast for Crows was so long delayed, it gave me plenty of time to reread the first three books. I, I, I read them, you know, I read each of them five times while I was waiting for Feast for Crows to come out. And it is, I mean, they are books that reward rereading. I mean, you, you read them and you just keep noticing connections and, and things. It, it's really amazing. Um there's a line at one point about how Robert Baratheon had fathered a bastard child when he was a young man living in the Vale of Aaron. And later, you know, later, um, Caitlin Stark travels there and she gets led up a mountain by a, a young woman named Maya Stone, you know, who's obviously, who's, who's a bastard given her last name. And, and she has like this black hair, um, that's characteristic of all of Robert Baratheon's bastard children. And so you're like, oh, hey, that's, you know, and the first time I never noticed that, but, you know, in subsequent rereadings, you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, hey, I, you know, that's, that's her. And, uh, you know, um, when Arya is sort of training, you know, uh, sort of sword training with, with the Syria Pharrell, he sends her around the Red Keep to catch cats. And there's this big nasty cat she can never catch. Then at one point you hear this story about how the Princess Rhaenys had a kitten that disappeared during a, a, you know, a storming of the castle. And you're like, oh, I, I'm, you know, <laughs> oh, it's the same cat. You know, the cat is still around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the, the most clever, I won't, this is kind of a, a spoiler, so I, I'll be circumspect about how I phrase it, but uh, the character Thoros of Mir has a, um, uh, a special ability, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and, and he doesn't know why. And it actually is possible to figure out the pattern behind why it works sometimes and, and why it doesn't. And, and when you figure that out, you're like, oh, wow, that, <laughs> is, that is pretty clever. And it's, it's all right there. I mean, it's, uh, like, oh, Wait. of course. You know, it's very cool, though, that he does stuff like that, but doesn't actually just spell it out for you. Like, you know, he like, sort of leaves it there for you to figure out if, because uh, it's not, like, relevant necessarily, I guess. But he doesn't, like, hit you over the head with it. It's like, oh, you know, here, look how clever I was. This is how it works. Because mm. uh, I think uh, most writers would be unable to resist the urge <laughs> to do that. And there are also, there are, like, a lot of in-jokes, too. Just, like, there's a, a part in Game of Thrones where, you know, where, where um, Caitlin Stark is taking um, Tyrion Lannister to the, um, to the Eyrie. And there are just sort of, you know, sort of random um, mercenaries hanging around. And, and three of them are named Larys, 
Mohor and Curlicat. <laughs> you know, so I saw actually someone ask George, like, these are these are like the three stooges, right? You know, and uh, and he's like, yeah, I, I didn't think anyone would notice that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then there's just like references to authors he likes too. Like, there's you know, one of the houses is is Vance. You know, which, you know, he mentioned Jack Vance. And if you actually, if you look through the index, I mean, some of them, they only appear, you know, in the index and on the maps and stuff. But, like, there's a house Rogers of Amberley, uh, you know, which is a reference to Rogers of Lozny's Amber series. And there's a house Jordan of the Tor, and it's, you know, Robert Jordan, and Tor publishes his stories and stuff like that. So there's, like, little things like that, that the more times you reread it, you keep noticing these things. I think another thing that's really interesting, if you've read George's other work, you know, his earlier novels and um, short stories and things, and then and then you read Song of Ice and Fire, is you can sort of see how Song of Ice and Fire is like his magnum opus, where he's taken pretty much every character and every idea that he ever came up with previously and sort of put them all into the same milieu. Mm-hmm. You know, like Sandra Clegane has his half-burned face, and there's a guy like that in George's first novel, Dying of the Light. And if you read the tough voyaging, you know, Haviland Tough kind of has this dry sense of humor. And uh, he has a, a, a sort of a friend named Jamie. And, and their relationship is exactly like the relationship dynamic of Tyrion Lannister and Jamie Lannister. Mm-hmm. And the Whites are like these sort of zombies who are being controlled, presumably by some distant intelligence. And that's kind of like the, um, you know, the zombie workers, you know, that you mentioned from um, Meat House Man and, and the stories in that sequence. Mm-hmm. And names will reappear too. Like I mentioned, uh, the story, A Song for Lion, there's like a character named Rob with two Bs in that. Speaking of the similarities like that, like, you know, George sure seems to like calling things songs, right? I mean, he's got <laughs> Song of Ice and Fire, it's Dream Songs, he's got a Song for Laia, the tribute anthology to Jack Vance was Songs of Dying Earth. He's got another one coming out that's got songs in it. Oh, I think it's called Songs of Love and Death. Well, I, yeah, I think at this point probably it's it's as much a marketing thing as anything else. Like for songs, yeah. of songs of love and death. I'm sure the publisher was like, maybe we could just rename this to make it sound more like Song of Ice and Fire, you know? <laughs> yeah, because it actually was called something else. Yeah, it's called Star-Crossed Lovers, I think. Oh originally. yeah, right, right. But yeah, like so, like here's from Wikipedia. They say one of Martin's earliest attempts at writing a fantasy story was Dark Gods of Kor Yubin, which was never published. The two heroes of the short story are the exiled Prince Rolor of Raug and his boisterous, swaggering companion, Argelac the Arrogant. In an abandoned sequel, Argelac teams up with Baron, the bloody blade of the Dothrak Empire, to slay the winged demons, uh, who killed Baron's grandfather, Barrist in the Bold. So, like, if, you know, if you're a, a fan of Song of Ice and Fire, you recognize all those names, you know, have reappeared in, in Song of Ice and Fire. You know, George is very adamant to new writers, you know, to not throw out anything at all that you write, you know, even if you don't think it's any good, because, you know, there's probably something in there that you can reuse uh, for something else at some point. Actually, probably the biggest one is if you've read um, the Armageddon Rag, there's a line in there. I won't say what it, what, what it is, but uh, I feel it's a huge thematic spoiler for, for Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, really? Huh. So if you're dying to, you know, if you can't wait for uh, Dance with Dragons and you want a clue, I, I recommend Armageddon Rag. I didn't realize Martin had done all that with Song of Ice and Fire, where he pulled in all this stuff from his other works, uh, the way you describe. But I mean, when you describe that, and especially since you called it his magnum opus, I mean, it just kind of makes me think of The Dark Tower by Stephen King, because people often refer to that as, as his magnum opus. And I mean, he did that same exact thing, except even you know more literally. I mean, he he like literally connects the the worlds of his stories all to the same story in The Dark Tower, where like The Dark Tower is sort of like the spine, and all of his other uh, stories are sort of these peripheral parts of the body and that you know they're all connected and uh you know in many cases like you know it just takes the character right out of a story you know and puts it into the dark towers yeah so i mean that's interesting that uh, martin does it in sort of a more uh, subtle way 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's one reason why I think people should read short stories, because a lot of times ideas originate in short stories. And, uh, you know, if you're not reading any of the short stories, you're, you're sort of missing out on, you know, where a lot of the stuff came from and what its initial form was. So it's sort of the same thing with Philip K. Dick. If you've read any Philip K. Dick novels and you've also read his short stories, a lot of his novels, I mean, he just literally took three short stories and sort of shoved them all together and, and that's a novel. Yeah, I mean, one thing, you know, that sort of has always struck me reading the message board is is that there was this thread one time where they wanted, there was sort of a poll on who were the sexiest characters, you know, in, in Song of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. But the, the three male characters who were rated the sexiest were Jamie Lannister, Sandor Clegane, and Theon Greyjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's some, you know, if, if you've read the books, I mean, these are sort of like, not quite, but pretty close to the three biggest jerks. <laughs> You know, in the series. Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely some a whole bad boy appeal going on mm-hmm. there, I guess. Jamie specifically is, is often referred to as being very handsome, though, isn't he? I mean, that, that one seems kind of obvious to me. Yeah, but Sandor Clegane has, like, half his face Yeah, right. That one, that's, that's a little puzzling. I wonder if that's the kind of thing where, like, it makes a difference that you can't actually see it. Right. Well, yeah, because I think it would probably look pretty horrible, just especially uh, with no modern science to even tidy it up a bit, you know, with skin grafts and whatnot. When they, I guess, I don't know, they'll probably have a similar poll when the HBO series comes out. It would be interesting mm-hmm. to see how, how that would differ from, you know, what people think just based on the descriptions in the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, so yeah, so I mean, the casting for the, uh, the HBO series, I guess George talked about it a little bit. They have, you know, Sean Bean as, uh, as Ned Stark is probably the most recognizable. They have Lena Headey, who's the uh, Sarah Connor Chronicles. She plays Sarah Connor. She's uh, Cersei Lannister. You know, HBO just a couple of days ago released this promo piece where you can see some of the you know actors in costume for the first time. So if you haven't watched that and you're interested, you should check that out. They have um, also um, Peter Dinklage as Tyrion Lannister, and uh, uh, what's the guy's name? The the guy playing Khal Drogo is um, he's like from Stargate Atlantis or something like that. Mm. Oh, and actually, I, I didn't realize this, but um, you know, uh, what's his name? Littlefinger or yeah, Peter Baelish. Yeah, so he's uh, he's played by the guy who plays Mayor Carcetti in The Wire, for anybody who watches yeah. it. It was making me a little nervous, though, watching that promo piece, because, uh, I mean, it looks like they're doing a really good job, but, you know, it isn't exactly how I picture the characters. And George describes the world in such sumptuous, grand ways that I just don't know if a, a TV production, even, you know, uh, an HBO one, can possibly match the, the sort of rich colors that the world world has in my head. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that I guess we're we're just about out of time. You know, we kind of like to end things with a quote. So I had a quote I, w- I was going to read that I, I really like. This is from uh, I guess this is from from the introduction to, to Dream Songs. Um, but this is uh, a quote by um, Gardner Dozois. Uh, he's a well-known editor in the field, and uh, you know has known George for a long time. And this is his description of of George Martin's writing. He says, George has always been a richly romantic writer. Dry minimalism or the coolly ironic games of postmodernism so beloved by so many modern writers and critics are not what you're going to get when you open something by George R. R. Martin. What you're going to get instead is a strongly plotted story driven by emotional conflict and crafted by someone who's a natural-born storyteller, a story that grabs you on the first page and refuses to let go. You're going to get adventure, action, conflict, romance, and lust, vivid human emotion, obsessive doomed love, stark undying hatred, unexpected veins of rich humor, It's something that's rare even in science fiction and fantasy these days, let alone in the mainstream. A love of adventure for adventure's sake. A delighting in the strange and colorful, bizarre plants and animals, exotic scenery, strange lands, strange customs, stranger people, backed by the inexhaustible desire to see what's over the next hill or waiting on the next world.
All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. It's uh, great to be back and uh, we hope you'll tune into the next episode. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9 and is brought to you by Brilliance Audio. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit io9.com slash tag slash geeks guide. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.